Hello, friends. Hello, my friends. This is Improv and Magic. I'm your friend, L.D. Madeira, and this is our special season finale episode. Hard to believe that we've actually made it here, my friends, but here we are. This first season has been such a fun and incredible season. I've gotten to talk to lots of people who I love and admire, some whom I never thought I'd actually get a chance to talk to. This podcast has been such an amazing experience, and so today I thought it'd be fun to relive some of my favorite moments from the season. Some of these moments are meaningful and insightful, and some moments are just really funny. But these are some specific moments that I really enjoyed in these conversations, and I hope you will enjoy them too. So now, let's begin our celebration of Improv and Magic Season 1 with a look back of some of my favorite moments. Enjoy, my friends! I want to backtrack a little bit because you'd mentioned about how people pushed you to try acting. Yep. And it's something that you did not want to do. Nope. Why did people push you to do that? And why was it something you did not want to do? My mom was always a stage mom. Um, I think she just, I don't know why. She, and it's a good question. I've never asked her really why she always pushed me to do it. Not my brother, but um, I had my mom and my aunt. My aunt wanted a partner in crime. She was more of an extroverted, outgoing performer type mm-hmm. like that. My mom didn't doesn't um but she always wanted me to be on a soap opera so it was like her thing and i remember as a kid she took me to acting classes i hated it sports i loved um so that was always where i i was in a comfort zone but i never wanted to do that acting thing when i went to um miami-dade college i took an acting class as an elective because she pushed me and kept pushing me to do it. And I needed to take an elective. I'd already taken the film and that was the one and only class that they had. So that was done. And I think I had something like four or six electives that I could take. So I took the acting one only because I had a heavy load. This is going back to my high school story. I had a heavy load and I figured this is one way to lighten that load. I was taking, I went to Miami back then. I went to a high school that had a lot of overachievers. Everybody was going to college. I was one of the few that had really screwed it up and was not going to college. I was probably coming back to do 12th grade all over again. If you read my yearbook, half of the signatures in my yearbook are like, I'm so sorry. You have to come back here again next year. (laughs) That's how much in limbo my life was about where I would be, you know, the very next year after 12th grade, I thought, there was a very good chance I was coming back to repeat a grade. Um, and I got out of it. So when I was in Miami Dade, I was like, okay, I'm going to get good grades. I'm really going to try. And I'm going to overload on classes because I want to get out of here too. I, I don't want to be at Miami Dade college. I started seeing in my first semester, a lot of kids who kind of failed out of real college, come back to Miami Dade college. And that, that to me was kind of like a wake up call. Like that would have been me had I got into college, Mm -hmm. I would have taken it for granted. I would have done all the dumb things and partied way too much and blown off classes. And here are all those kids coming back now. So I really just got into a tunnel focused and did that. 
the acting class was my mom pushing me and I figured, all right, no homework. This will be easy. And next thing I know, I'm in a play, then I'm in a musical, and then I'm off to NYU. And that's literally how it happened. What, what was the musical that you were in? Bye Bye Birdie. <laughs> <laughs> and I ended up playing the lead. Did, did you play the lead in Bye Bye Birdie? Uh, fun quick story. I was doing the other play, which I couldn't tell you the title of for the life of me. It was just a, a, a play. And I was, a, I was like a, a smaller part in that play, which I was fine with. And during the run of that play, and the run of that play was only like, I think two weekends, maybe a weekend. It's very short in college. And somebody came up to me and said, hi, I, I am the person who is the musical director for this musical. I think you should do this. You would be the right person for this. And I said, I don't want to do it. She's like, that's why you're the right person for this. <laughs> I said, you don't even know if I can sing. I don't even know if I could sing. And she's like, well, we can figure that out. So I worked with her and we literally worked together for about a month. And I went into that audition and she did the coolest thing for me. Um, and this actually has bled into some of the stuff that we do at JTF. She, um, right before the audition, I was nervous. I had never sung in front of anybody before. And I didn't really know if I could do this. There was a piano in this one class. And I think it was a class on like, I want to say it was like an English class or something. It was a really like not artistic class. She dragged me in there before the professor got there. And the class was probably about three quarters full waiting for the professor. And she walked in with me and she said, oh, we've got to walk in here for a second. This is literally like 20 minutes before the audition. And we had just like come from like warming up and rehearsing and getting ready for the audition. She, she goes, we got to go in here into this class. We walk in this classroom. I'm like, what are we doing here? And she turns to the class and, and sits at the piano and says, this is my friend, David. He's about to audition for a major part in the musical here at the school. And he needs to sing his song for somebody. Are you all willing to listen? Oh my goodness. <laughs> and I just looked at her like, what are you making me do? <laughs> and then I sang the song. And then I realized that's harder than the audition. <laughs> I went to the audition and I just nailed it. After that, it was easy. And um, I ended up getting that part. And the way that it's bled into what we do at JTF, that just the funny is that we really are about pushing people. We've done this through street performance. We've done this through student performance opportunities to really try to get them to find themselves in the uncomfortability of having to stretch beyond just the safety and confines of, of the vacuum of class. So after college, what did you do? Oh gosh. Um, after college, I worked in corporate America for a little while, mm. uh, and then I moved to New York. Did you really? I did. I did. I did not know that. I did. I moved in 1997, 98, something like that, and then stayed there for a little bit over a year, and I was in a great place. I had a friend who had a friend who had a friend <laughs> who had a rent-controlled apartment, and the rent was literally $480. For a New York apartment, that's incredibly cheap. In Chelsea, on 8th <laughs> Avenue. Oh, wow. Between 21st and 22nd. Yeah. 
which at even at that time they were going for two grand mm. um, or whatever it was I you know and so but I had to pay a little bit more but um, I, I, sh- I shared an apartment with he was a scene designer and um, for a little bit and I stayed in the room that was probably about the size half the size of this mm-hmm. and I was going to go bananas um, <laughs> in that room and I would escape to go to the movies because it was the only place that had air conditioning in the summertime. Really? Yeah, because in New York, you know, my room didn't have AC. Mm. It was one of the older apartments. And so it was so hot that the only way that you could go and get some relief is to go into a building. So I would just like sneak in to like on a Saturday or Sunday. And I would just like watch two or three movies. You and- know what's one thing I've never heard? I've never heard uh, an actor who, when they say they went to New York, uh, they never say, oh, I had a great apartment. Well, I had such a bad apartment that this is a, a true story. So I had never grown up with a gas oven in my entire life. <laughs> really? Never. And so one day I woke up and I thought, oh my God, there's a gas leak because it smells like rotten eggs. That's the whole, that's how you know. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, I can smell rotten eggs. I, there's got to be something wrong. There's something going on here. So I call Con Ed, the Con Ed guy, which is Con Edison, which is the, the, the electrician, you know, the, the company, the electrical company. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh my God, I've got to gas leak somebody's got to come right away so this like typical new york you know electrician with the butt crack and the whole Mm -hmm. thing comes he's like yeah let me see this you know let me see the whole thing and he finally he goes into my kitchen i'm standing behind him freaking out um because i'm thinking the whole place is about to blow up um and he lifts up my oven the oven top you know how you have the oven top in a gas oven he lifts up and there's a dead rat oh my god I scream because that's what's been stinking, but I just didn't know that, and right. I thought it was a gas leak. Right. Um, and so that's that was my my New York welcome to New York. Um, yeah. It's not a gas leak; it's a dead rat. Yeah, that's the New York life. Yeah, I always hear every actor say, "My apartment had rats. Yeah. Nothing worked. We had no hot water." It's it's amazing that that always tends to be part of every everybody's story. It's when a rite of passage, yeah. you know, that you have a crappy apartment. It's really interesting how, you know, you are definitely a trend of what I see a lot of people in improv, where if you hear a lot about how they began, they always start off kind of the same way, similar to you, where they say, oh, I could never do something like that. Uh, I'm not good enough to ever do something like that. And then it isn't until they dive into it that they realize that they actually can do this and they really discover something uh, inside themselves that they never thought they had. Because I've seen you in like a lot of performances and I see you as a very confident and fearless uh, performer. And it's amazing to hear how, you know, how you didn't give yourself permission in that beginning. Um, Do you, because I know you also teach improv, is that something that you also tend to notice a lot when you teach students on how to do this? By the time they get to me, I think they've, they've made the, you know, they're like, I'm ready to do this. But I think there are still students that do have confidence issues. I have had to have that conversation with certain students that they they should do this more, that they're very good at it and they should do it. I try to be careful and not tell students, you know, you're great, you're amazing, you know, but I like to tell people, because I like to follow the Viola Spolin approach of like, don't tell students they're terrible, but also don't tell them they're great. 
if you're going to tell one, if you're going to praise one student, remember there's always other students that aren't being praised in that moment. They see that, you know, you don't want to, you know, muddy the waters in that way. But I, I like the idea of, I like telling people there are certain students where I've been like, hey, you, you should continue to do this because if you practice at this, there's a very good chance you'll be very, very good at it. You have the building blocks and I think you should continue with it. That's just my opinion, but I think you should continue, you know, because I want people to know that they can do it. And then there are some people that I've said, if, you know, I give you permission, you know, and I, th I think a lot of people are looking for that. I think they're looking for someone to say, yes, that is correct. Yes, you are right. Keep going. And I want to be that voice for them because I had to find that voice for myself initially. And uh, Michael Joya helped me continue. Todd Bruno helped me. Todd Bruno was my first improv teacher. I say that name because you might know him. Um, you know, and it, it's just that. It's just whoever they are, uh, you know, certain students in class, yeah, they, there are people that are um, really struggling and looking for an answer, looking for that permission. Yeah, that permission and, and I think as teachers, we sometimes take this for granted, but that permission that we give to that student is means the world to them. Giving them that yes, you know, that's the thing that I think a lot of times a lot of students are looking for, just to have that someone in authority, quote unquote, for lack of a better term, to say, yes, you, you are able to do this. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen students who get that yes for me, and it's like their whole lives uh, have just changed. I, I've heard many students jokingly say, this is better than therapy. Oh, all the time. People say that. And I'm very quick, especially since I don't have the right parents, I'm very quick to say, hey, hold on. It's not therapy. It's therapeutic, <laughs> but it is not. I am not a licensed therapist. Um, since he was part of the Orange Growers of uh, uh, Orange Growers Association, whenever we'd go to Disney World, which is a place that I know you and I are very fond of, yeah. uh, over at the Enchanted Tiki Bird, the, when the Enchanted, I don't tiki know what they room. called it, it was a Tiki Enchanted Tiki Room, uh, they used to have a lounge, uh, like behind the scenes lounge, where you can go, and uh, and it was Orange Bird, obviously Orange Bird, the character's very popular now, back yeah. then he was just starting to blow up as a character. Yeah, and it's, I, a, it's a lot more popular now than it was before. It was, character. it was, back then it was just a way to promote orange, you know, mm -hmm. it's, an, it's a bird whose head is literally an orange. Uh, which is yeah. weird, uh, but so they had like a lounge area. We'd go there, and every single time we were there, they'd always set us up courtside or I guess ringside for the Diamond Horseshoe Review, which is a place mm -hmm. where you now it's just sort of like a like a salon, a salon that salon like saloon, sorry, that you could eat at uh, and drink at. But back then there used to be a whole show, like it was like this right. old timey show. I remember that. Yeah, show. and they used to bring up a kid. They used to stand over above a trap door and all that. I was that kid like maybe eight, nine times over the course of growing up just because we were always sitting at the best seats and we'd go there. And uh, yeah. So. Yeah. Well, this is where you and I are definitely kindred spirits because yes. we're both big uh, Disney World fans. Yes. And there was one trip where my wife and I met up with you and your wife. Yes. And you actually got us into one of the secret lounges at Epcot. Yes. Yes. Uh, so... Um, I can't talk too much about this Club 33 <laughs> thing, um, just for obvious reasons. But yeah, uh, it, it is. Well, a, a lot of people it, know about it. I think they know about it, but again, it's the kind of thing where they say, "Well, don't, don't give all the details, like how much it costs, what the perks are, and stuff." Like it, we're sort right. of told, "Hey, you know, it's 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 not an easy club to get into. It's not mm -hmm. a cheap club to get into." 
but once you're there, uh, it's like a it's 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 yeah, you do have lounges and other things uh, that, that make Disney World even more enjoyable. But again, I, I it, to me, I even before the club, obviously, I was a big Disney fanatic. I would have been there for life. It was a pleasure to treat you and Erica out there. And, you know, and hopefully I'll see you out there again and do it again. I remember when we were at that lounge at Epcot, I, I went to the bathroom and I remember just standing in there thinking to myself, this is the nicest bathroom I've ever been inside. Yes, yes. We stop. Sometimes just stopping that bath, you know, like cloth napkins and everything, like stuff you don't see everywhere else in the Disney World park. Right. So, yes. but there is one thing I do have over you, and yes. it's that Erica and I got to do the Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser. Yes, I was jealous. Now I'm not the <laughs> Star Wars fan that you are, so obviously I'm glad one of us had to do it. I'm glad it was you and Erica. Uh, I wanted to go. I was meaning to go, and it got and it got discounted to the point that hey, you know what? Maybe it's worth it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as we all know, uh, Disney it, wasn't turning a profit on it, and it will be closing at the end of September. It's so. flying away. Yes, it's, it's flying, flying away. away. So, but an amazing experience. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's it's one of those things that got a lot of mixed reviews, <laughs> as you would expect. I mean, every time Disney opens anything, people yeah. love it and people hate it. But Eric and I, we just adored that the heck out of it. Yeah, as uh, you should. Yeah. Um, how often are, are you at, at Disney World in Celebration? Yeah, so we have a place in Celebration, Florida. So Celebration, Florida is if you saw The Office, Andy uh, says I'm gonna you know I'm gonna move to a town. We're gonna move to Celebration, built by Disney World. <laughs> Disney World has nothing to do with Celebration anymore. They built it, then they unloaded it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's literally this town. It's almost like like Truman Show kind of town, at the end <laughs> of World Drive. So anyone that's ever gone to Disney World, any of the four parks, you've been on World Drive. It's that one street that connects all the Disney parks. If you keep heading south, it literally ends on a sign that says celebration. And you should stop because cars have kept going and fallen into a lake there, and it's not worked out well for them uh, in the past. But uh, <laughs> and celebration is this town. It's, it's a master planned community, but it's not gated. So it's not like you know anyone can come in, a uh, nice little downtown. But everything is throwback in the, in the sense that uh, there, are every, there are porches. Uh, in most houses, there's a front porch. They're, the garages are always in the back of the alley. So they don't want you like parking and hiding from it. You know, they want you, if you're going to be out leaving your house, they want you in front and visible to everyone and neighbors in, interact and engage with one another. A lot of trails there, which you don't really don't see in like anywhere near Kissimmee. So you're literally right off 192 uh, and I'm, World Drive and I-4 are all right there. They all intersect right there. But it's a great place. If You don't have to live there. Uh, you can go there and visit and still feel this kind of relaxing thing with really charming parks that are open to everyone. Uh, and amazing trails where you just and, and, and such amazing wildlife uh, you know we live right by a lake and sometimes uh, we call them chomps like little gators there uh, you'll sometimes see deer come by rarely where we are uh, but you know there's all these animals eagles owls uh, falcons there's even bears now which I know isn't a good thing to say but yeah it's, it's a very dynamic area there are nicer neighborhoods in the area now, uh, outside of Celebration. Well, so there's, sure there's, now. Yeah, yeah, so there's a lot of fancier places, and they're gated and stuff. I don't want a gate. And even though they say living in Celebration is like living in a bubble, I don't mind being in that bubble. To me, it's something, you know, I don't mind the fact that I'm in a place and, and people are coming by. Halloween and Celebration, it, it, people hate it because it's it's actually a budgetable item where you need to say, <laughs> I need to, I got to, and where we live, it's not that heavily trafficked because we're like off a trail. We're like, 
basically three four minutes from downtown walk but it's you got you don't know where we are unless you're right across town hall necessarily speak but people don't necessarily know that there's homes there to go hit on halloween they'll stick in the main village but we've gone through 500 600 pieces of candy but i know in the heart of down in the, in the heart of celebration uh maybe four or five thousand pieces of candy people have handed out in the course of the night so or they just shut off their lights and you know call it a day like most people do but it's it to me it's 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 great it's, it's celebrations at its best over the holidays yeah Whenever you read any biography of Walt Disney, they always talk about Epcot and what his original vision of Epcot was. Yeah. That it wasn't necessarily meant to be a theme park, but an actual, it was it was meant to be a prototype of what living in a, in a community could be like. And I feel like right. Celebration is not exactly that, but kind of the closest, next best thing to that. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the model of Epcot, the original, not not our Epcot Center, in, right. in, which is a theme park. It's a theme park, obviously. Right. Uh, yeah. it, it, it is sort of in the sense it'd be sort of everyone living together. Uh, there'd be a lot. Of, there was a lot of mass transit so that everyone would be able to live off the, you know, come work together and stuff like that. That doesn't necessarily exist in Celebration. Even a lot of people have those NEVs, those short little golf cart kind of vehicles to drive around uh, if you live far from the center. But yeah, it, it, it's, it's like that in the fact that it is kind of a... Let's build a community. Let's have schools. Let's have shared experiences. Let's have work mm-hmm. so people can work and everything happen there. But that almost happens everywhere now. Um, even like you know, in, in Doral, you know, you have residential and now downtown. So everywhere you go, it's happening where you sort of have that kind of feel. Uh, just uh, yeah, Walt was a ahead of his time, obviously. Right. I mean, we could do a whole episode about you and I talking yes. about Disney stuff. <laughs> I would enjoy that actually. From magic to the Magic Kingdom. So, exactly. Yeah. We're at 1979 now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're in San Francisco. In San Francisco. So what did you do there? <clears throat> oh, my God. Uh, well, most of it, I, well, some of it I can't talk about in public. Um, <laughs> it was the 70s, know. <laughs> you know, in San Francisco. I mean, use your imagination, and I was probably there. Um, so a lot of that, yeah. you know, um, and, uh, uh, you know, hanging out of the hate. And I, uh, but, but it was, um, you know, it was... It was a new city. Um, I, I again, I was involved with this theater company. I went to school there for two years, and I was a member of the company and did a, a, a number of plays with that company. The person that was there, Wendell Phillips, was a, uh, you know, uh, uh, in the theater world, uh, iconic. He was he was very well known and a great teacher. Um, so I had the theater tie me down, but I worked at a string of restaurants, like a lot of actors. You know, I worked, uh, I, and I lived in different parts of the city, um, uh, fell in some hard times. I was, you know, I lived in the theater for a while. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Um, still don't know. In the prop room. So, you know, I, I, I'd rehearse and then go upstairs and go to and sit in the prop room. And in the shadows, there'd be props and costumes and this and that and, and furniture. And it was just a wild existence, you know. Um, and couple that with I'm 19. I'm 19 years old, you know. Um and so my life was, you know, I saw The Grateful Dead a lot, you know, so I did all the things you'd think. I, you know, um, lots of rock concerts and, uh, and um, a lot of, the, a lot of the, the great 70s rock musicians were still, you know, in their prime, uh, or at least at their full powers. Um, I, you know, we went camping a lot. I was in a lot of earthquakes, <laughs> um, you know, and worked at uh, restaurants as a cook and a chef, and not a chef, but line cooks and uh, uh, saute cook and... <clears throat> different things like that and I was a bicycle messenger for a while oh yeah. wow yeah man I uh, hopped on a bike and every morning I'd fly we actually had paper back then that we had to deliver to people <laughs> and uh, and 
I'd get on my bicycle, man, and, and uh, do the things you might do in San Francisco <laughs> and ride around the San Francisco all day delivering stuff. It was a pretty cool job, you know. Cool, cool. Um, my hair was somewhat long. Um, and uh, so I, I, I kind of lived the life, the serious study of, of acting and the theater, which was just this heady experience, but also, uh, uh, you know, being immersed in, in San Francisco as a 19-year-old, which was the ex- an experience in and of itself. It was... I look back on it, and it was a it was a wild time. It was it was great. Yeah. It was great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what were things that you learned during your time in, as an actor in San Francisco? Um, I learned to tell the truth, at least on stage. Uh, Wendell, uh, the, the the teacher that we had, we were you know, um, it was very much kind of early, really kind of the arc of Stanislavski's work. So it was Stanislavski work. Um, and, uh, you know, I really had never studied with a teacher. I've had been very fortunate to study with some fairly well-known teachers, and the great ones just have a presence. And, um, you know, I learned uh, how, to, uh, how to speak the truth, how to, how, to, how, to, how to allow emotional um, currency to flow. How to how to connect to a character? I learned to use my imagination. Um, we also taught a, taught us a technique uh, called the Michael Chekhov technique, which is a very physical, imaginative, uh, psychological, it's a psychophysical technique. But imagination plays a huge part of it. Um, improvisation plays a huge part of it. And uh, so I, I, you know, I learned. Here's what I learned. I learned that uh, what a high art form acting is. You know that it is uh, something to be taken seriously and studied and worked at. It's a craft, but it's also an art form. But it's also I learned how to have fun doing it. You know, um, not to take ourselves too damn seriously. Um, so I guess I, I the truth of a moment. Um, I also learned from Wendell how to look at a scene and kind of get to the heart of what's really going on. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, and he taught me that. And you know, in addition to the to the technique, and I also learned, you know, uh, uh, at that theater, as I said earlier, what it was like to be part of a like-minded, extremely artistic and creative community that was trying to do something large. You know, we were we were trying to change the world. We were trying to we were trying to change the world, and so that kind of passion has never left me. So I think I got that in stage work. I was a teenager. I actually was a member of uh, IBM. I belonged to a uh, ring number 45 in Miami. Mm-hmm. And I remember uh, the first time I went to a magic convention, I don't know if they still do it, but they had a convention called magic on the beach. Cause you know, it's Miami uh, in Daytona. No, this was in Miami beach and Miami beach. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if they still have that one. Yeah. Mind you, this is back in the nineties. So maybe Daytona uses the name now. I don't know. But I remember um, one of the special guests was James Randi. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time I met the guy. And I have a picture somewhere of me as a young teenager with James Randi. And it was such a great experience to just be around these, for the most part, adults who were acting like kids surrounded uh, by by toys. Um, do you still get that same childlike feeling when you're chatting with other magicians sure absolutely and i you know i even though i've been doing magic now for 20 years i still get fooled pretty regularly Mm -hmm. um uh more than i thought i would 
having been in magic that long. Not saying everything fools me, but mm-hmm. I still get fooled a good amount. And my favorite thing to do at conventions, really, uh, and I learned this fairly early, is to s- just sit down next to the older guys and let them tell stories. Mm. Uh, I learned that a long time ago. I, it was more than once at Abbott's that I got to just pull up a chair next to Johnny Thompson, say, and just listen to him go. That's all mm. I really wanted. And occasionally you could ask a, a, uh, a leading question. Say, like, hey, Johnny, uh, could you tell us a story about so-and-so? And, of course, he'll have one. Um, and uh, uh, because they love, they love to share, I know I do, um, I love to share stories about the characters that I've met or experiences that I've had as a performer. Um, and it's, it's an oral tradition that uh, cannot really be uh, replaced any other way. Absolutely. Well, you've opened this door. So let me just go ahead and ask, what was it like to uh, listen to Johnny Thompson? Oh, it's fantastic. What a great storyteller. Not only that, but he does impressions. Does he really? Um, Oh, absolutely. He did. Oh, I didn't he know used that. To do, he used to do a, a spot-on Di Vernon. Did he really? Oh, absolutely. Because uh, he studied with Di Vernon for many, many years. Um, and they were very close. And so he could do a pretty spot-on Vernon impression. And Vernon had this kind of high nasal voice. Mm. Uh, and and uh, uh, Thompson could pull it off. Absolutely. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. I've definitely like all of us have been like a big uh, Johnny Thompson fan. Um, Cause he influenced so much. If you look at every big magician, you know that at some point they worked with Johnny Thompson as far as helping them create uh, the magic. Uh, yeah. That they if do. they're smart, they do. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, do you notice any sort of differences between the magic that you saw when you discovered it and the magic that we see today? Uh, yes. Um, the magic we see these days technically is more intricate and complex and advanced than ever before. The technical aspect of magic advances much faster than the performing aspect. Hmm. Um, and they said it uh, 15 years ago, and they still say it today, that um, the uh, young people um, who are coming up in magic are more technically proficient than ever before. But they are rarely as um, theatrically proficient because they are so used to just learning the moves, putting it on uh, social media, and that's it. But they don't perform for real live people, which is where the theatrical experience comes from. Hmm. So you have a deficit, very highly technically skilled, but the performing theatrical as- aspect is way behind. Which of those two do you think is most important? Uh, being technically oh, the proficient? The, the theatrical. theatrical? Absolutely. You can be a very ham-fisted, not very technically skilled magician and still rock the house as when you've got your performer chops, you don't Mm -hmm. need 
a lot of technical skill to be an entertaining magician. Uh, magicians, I find, and I, I, w- I wish I could credit this quote. I know it's not mine, but I can't remember who, uh, who said it right now. But uh, magicians tend to be uh, gifted in one of three ways. Creatively, and, and that they're good at coming up with their own magic. Technically, they can do the hard knuckle-busting stuff. Or theatrically, and they can entertain a crowd with with nothing essentially. And the really good magicians are two out of th- two out of three. Um, and the great magicians are three out of three. Hmm. Uh, Williamson is an example. He's a knuckle buster. He can do the hard stuff. He can create his own magic, and he's a brilliant uh, entertainer. So he's he's a rare example, I think, of uh, all, all three in one. So you said you uh, you came over to Canada first. Uh, what age was that again? Uh, Sixteen. Sixteen. Yeah, they okay. kicked me out. <laughs> I'm not out. kidding. I'm not kidding. They kicked me out of Canada. Okay, tell this story. <laughs> okay, so my name is Jonathan Freudman, right? Mm-hmm. My parents looked for the whitest, most conservative uh hosts in canada <laughs> really like like they like you think you've seen white people like they were like snow white <laughs> you know <laughs> really and their policy was that they didn't accept latinos because we were like a little bit of you know party people and whatever mm. whatnot and they and my parents speak english so and they saw my last name they didn't know i was latino <laughs> they thought I was I was German yeah. or or something. Yeah. So they were like, "Oh, you speak Spanish," and they were like, "Like starstruck, but not not starstruck." Like they were like shocked and yeah. But they were okay until I start. I mean, papi, I'm an animal that you had me in a very small cage, which means my town. I didn't know anything. You gave me a ha- I had to drive 20 minutes to go to one club where I had to <laughs> use my fake ID and all of that shenanigans. You threw me up. You, you, you throw me out in a big city where there is just one street of freaking clubs. It's not going to end well. I didn't do any crazy <laughs> stuff, but I was loud and... You like, were being yourself. I, uh, yeah, but like, like to like, I, I evolved. If I was a Pokemon, like I, I had, like I evolved from a Pikachu to a Raichu. You get what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. like, and they didn't like it. They stopped. They, they started giving, putting a microwave in my closet, what? so that I didn't have to go to the kitchen because I was too loud and I was getting to, uh, I was getting home at two in the morning. Are you serious? Yeah, and they put like a microwave inside my, so that I didn't wake them up. No, it's fine. Like that, that I understand them. <laughs> um, and little by little, and sometimes you know I will sneak people in. Uh, no girls because I was a loser. Just like my friends, my guy friends to watch movies in mm-hmm. my laptop because that's that was when that what we did back in two thousand and six. Mm-hmm. We didn't have Netflix. We didn't have any of that. So, in one day, my father called me and he was like, "What do you do?" I was like, "What did I do? Of what?" Your your host family 
is not hosting you anymore. Like they don't want to host you anymore. You have to find somewhere else to go. And I was like, damn. Like, like okay. Just like okay. that. And I, I was like, well, let me get another family from the program or whatever. No, they have put out a letter of how, like, obnoxious you are and they're not accepting you in that like program i was like oh that well i'm gonna move with my with my friends in downtown because some of our friends had an apartment in downtown and he was like hell no pick up your things and come back here and i went to venezuela i was there for three months vivin la vida loca and mm -hmm. and then my father was like okay it's enough like either you go to college here You, you go to Miami with your mom and your, and your brother or you stay here and work with me. I was like, I was already seeing Venezuela like going downhill. Mm -hmm. And I was like, eh, maybe maybe Miami. And mm -hmm. also I missed my mom and my brother. Of course. And I came to Miami and that's that's where you guys found me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure in Miami you just fit right in. Oh my God. Yeah, <laughs> I was I was lost. I, yeah. was, I was definitely lost. But acting, I have to say, acting got got me back into life into mm -hmm. understanding he has given me so many things a lot of people probably went to the io intensive learned the herald and then was did their best to take it back so you mm -hmm. kind of see this each country is kind of a seed of the the person who could remember what they could remember and <laughs> and so every every place that had someone already doing the herald They all had their own different versions that were like, oh, there's the other guy. Hold on. Here it is. Uh, <laughs> pause, Can you everybody. Can you get it? it? Yes, you get it. No problem. Do your thing. Do your thing. Hang tight. That was, my best, that was my best story. <laughs> Hold on. I got to go help because I got to wrangle the dogs. Yeah, right. yeah. Go for it. Go for it. Oh, guys, come here. Come, 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 come. Okay, LD. All right. <laughs> here's the deal. Good news and good news, we think mostly, but uh one of our contractors isn't coming now. So this is like better. really <laughs> yeah. it's it's raining. There's so someone in our house. They were gonna have okay. to they were gonna dig the trench outside. Yeah, it's so raining. you would have heard like they would have been like Right in the middle of a great story, you would have heard like. Ah. <laughs> Now at least we're, like, we're in the clear. We think. Cool. So where were we? <laughs> uh, here, I'll start. I'll start over. Like uh, just a Harold Stuffman. Yeah. Yeah. Just I'm so totally leaving this in, by the way, because I think it's great. <laughs> <laughs> we should say we were should say like... we're building it. We're building a tiny house, and it's uh, we have yeah. like no less than six contractors at our house, and LD's being the most gracious host. In America. When we, were, when we were gone, were you like, uh, this is a good time to say uh, this podcast brought to you by NordVPN. NordVPN. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's your mattress. <laughs> yeah, if I can start doing commercials, that's the perfect place to add it. <laughs> awesome. So, yeah, you I need was... cereal? Go to Magic Spoon. Anyway. <laughs> Magic Spoon cereal. <laughs> oh, great time to take uh, Anyway. Yeah. You know what's funny? Uh, my father-in-law... Uh, jokes all the time about how when I'm on stage, I'm like this explosive guy and I'm like, no fear. But then when I'm in like social settings, I, t I tend to get a little bit more quiet, which yeah. blows his mind for some reason. It blows my mind too. And I don't really have a cohesive answer as to why. Um, 
does that kind of do you think do you think of yourself kind of like that or are you kind of bigger on stage than you are with other people oh gosh that is you know that's interesting for me to think about because i think i am bigger on stage than i am in real life um when I'm teaching, it almost kind of becomes a, a, an onstage, not like persona, because like I'm authentically who I am. But there definitely is like an element of performing, I think, when I'm teaching. But you put me in a social setting, and I definitely do withdraw a little bit. Not as much as Nate. He's a little more introverted than I am. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it depends where I am. But I think I can definitely be, be bigger on stage than in person. You know, yeah, I think it's true with a lot of us performers that do this, yeah, because you and I are definitely not the only ones. I mean, I've seen a lot of people who, you know, when they're on stage, they're so alive, and when they're off stage, they're like very, very quiet. Do you see that particularly in students a lot too? I do, actually. Yeah, I think I have some students who come to me like for an improv 101 class, and they'll be like, you know, I'm taking this class because. I'm so shy or I'm looking to get confidence. Um, and I've had students be like, I don't know if I can do the showcase. We have a showcase at the end of the 101 um, and be very nervous about it and oftentimes not invite anyone despite my protestations of I promise you'll wish you had. Um, and you'll get this person who is very kind of shy, reserved. But after like a week or two in class, they really start to come come alive, come out of their shell, you know, doing the games, doing the scene work in the class. But then when they get on stage, I want to say... Seriously, I'm not a statistics person, but nine times out of 10, um, they just, I'm like, who is this individual? Where has this person been? But yeah, I think it's, it's, um, yeah, you, you give yourself permission under the lights, especially if you can't see the audience to sort of step into another version of yourself that you might not be comfortable doing in an office setting, in a cocktail party setting. But yeah, I do see it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I I love teaching improv to shy people because I love seeing the growth that you see. I mean, you see people really transformed. I know you must have seen this so many times. Um, The transformation is what I think has been really appealing to people lately and wanting to get into improv. Because, you know, at, at Just the Funny we don't get people that sign up because, Oh, I want to be an improviser. We get people who, you know, Google things like, how do I get over shyness? Mm-hmm. And of course, one of the top answers that has been coming up is improv classes as, as, as you know. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. And also I think there's value too in like the environment of an improv class where I think people come in sometimes they're like, well, I'm going to take this class because I'm going to be forced to be funny or clever or quick. And you're really not. And so I think that sort of happens organically when you're given permission to be your authentic self, which I'm sure sounds hippy dippy. But one of the first things I tell people, and I will repeat frequently in a class is you do not have to be funny. You do not have to be clever. You do not have to be entertaining. Your scenes do not have to be funny. Do not have to be clever. Do not have to be entertaining. Because if you come into a class feeling like I've got to be freaking Robin Williams, that's a lot of pressure and it's not sustainable for anyone. But I think if you're given permission to just create and see where it goes and not have to be the life of the party, that person's version of freedom, artistically, creatively free, whatever that looks like, will start to emerge. Yeah. And so that might be big and boisterous, but it might not be. And that's okay too, you know? And, And I also love the experience of seeing students do something just because that's their truth at the moment. And then they get a big reaction and that kind of catches them off guard. Like, oh, wow, I I didn't know I could do something like that. I hear that a lot. I wasn't even trying to be funny. I'm like, bingo. (laughs) Yeah. Isn't that the best feeling? Yes, it is. Yeah. 
Yeah. To me, that's like better than drugs. I, I love that feeling. I Not agree. that I would know, of course. <laughs> I'm rolling right now. Is that what the kids call it? Rolling? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I don't do drugs. I'm not sure. Yeah. yeah. I'm lit, but in a different way, in a yeah. different way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, here's my last question for you, Casey. Mm-hmm. What's the one piece of advice that has served you well that you want everyone else to hear? One piece of advice. Oh, crap. I should have been prepared for this. I listened to so many of these episodes before. Um, (laughs) One piece of advice. I don't know. I think um, just knowing that you're enough. I mean, Mark, I think, is the first person I ever heard say that. Oh, we got a call. Should I answer it for just the funny? Uh, Yeah, let's let it ring. I mean, we could. It could be a whole... It could be a whole thing, oh, yeah. there's no phone here. Of course there's just a thing that rings, but no phone. <laughs> but this place. This, this is really place. happening, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I was ready to answer and start slinging tickets tonight. Anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, I just think, like, Mark was the first person I ever heard say it. And um, I know a lot of people say it. But it's such a beautiful reminder and thing to just, you know, you're enough. Like... Don't try to be anybody else. Don't try to be funny. Don't try to be anything but, you know, your absolute best self, I think is, that's important, you know? If you do that, at least one person watching is going to be like, that person, that's my person there, you know? Yeah. You know, you always watch something and you just, like, identify with one person in the cast. You're like, that's the guy, or that's yeah. the woman, or that's whoever, you know? Um, yeah, so you are enough. That's important. You're one of the few people that I've gotten to meet that actually got to work with Del Close. Mm. So if you'll indulge me for a moment, what was it like working with the Del Close? I mean, it's a big question. Um, you know, I I think I I definitely learned from Del. Um, and... There's a couple of things, you know, I thought, I thought he was brilliant. I thought he was, I thought he was wonderful and awful. Um, (laughs) And, but I think, you know, it's like, uh, he was so different from my father and so different from like the authority male figures that I had encountered at that point in my life that I'm like, wow. Uh, okay, this guy's taught a lot of famous people. Actually, the first time I, the first time I met him, I think I've told this story before, but the first time I met him, I was with a buddy named uh, Charlie Hyatt. We went up to Chicago. Uh, He had a joint that was our, our passage to get into Dell's apartment, which was right across the street from second city. So we smoked a joint with Dell and um, I had not moved up to Chicago yet, but I was very interested in this whole thing of like improv Olympics and teamwork and improv and, like, oh yeah, my sports background's really good for this. I'll I'll let Dell, you know, know what my background is. And this is why I'm excited to to come and, you know, work with him. And so we got super high. And we're <laughs> sitting on the the we're sitting on his like mattress, which was like on the ground. And um I I, you know, a moment came where there was like a pause and I said something stupid, like, you know, I'm really looking forward to working with you the whole team thing was ingrained to me like in a sports contact as a child 
in a sports context as a child. I'm, uh, I really think, you know, there's something, there's something about it that's going to have me, you know, find my place in Chicago and this whole, you know, uh, art by committee before that was coined. Uh, and then I like dropped the fun fact as if I would impress him, you know, my dad played football for Notre Dame and he was holding a joint like about eight inches from his lips, just like kind of listening to me. Hi. And then there was this pregnant pause and I could feel his brain working and he goes, Oh really? And then he takes a hit off the joint and he says, uh, your father played football for Notre Dame. Huh? I taught Belushi how to shoot up. (laughs) 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 I was like, I felt like, I think, I think just because of that moment, uh, that moment is what makes me love South Park because I felt like every South Park, <laughs> Park kid going, wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh my God, that's so awesome. Yeah. But again, that performance, Gene, Bone, or that bug never really, it never really hit me, you know? Um, when I was working at JCPenney, I don't know. It, when I was working at JCPenney, you know, they play these songs on the speaker. Like, I know these songs, so I'm singing it throughout the store. But that's it's more for me to to be happy while I'm working, mm-hmm. you know? Not to, you know, not to impress anybody or, right. you know, just to create a show or anything like that. Um, Is there a connection between the experience of you singing those songs? Alex is... Alex has given my favorite and probably one of the best renditions of uh, Sting or the Police's Roxanne karaoke uh, I've ever seen. Uh, it was gobsmackingly amazing and fantastic and phenomenal. But Alex really does not like <laughs> music. He doesn't like singing and rapping or doing musical improv, but he's so entertaining at it and everybody loves watching him do it and he's very good at it, but I'm just curious because that Roxanne was outstanding. It, um, you know what, the the thing about music and 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 all that, you have to stay on rhythm. Okay, <laughs> there's a rhythm, there's a beat, as something you need to follow. Right. And for me, that's the hardest thing to, you know. So if I if you don't see me clapping along, it may because that's. <laughs> Me trying to stay on rhythm, you know. On the downbeat on the, on the three, two, one. <laughs> they do, you know. Sometimes they do the like. I can't church keep clap. like the church clap. Man. I can't keep up, like I, you know. So you know, staying on rhythm is um, it's a hard thing for me, you know. So that'll get me, that'll get me in my head. Yeah. That'll get me start thinking, overthinking. <laughs> And not feeling confident. So. And despite it, every single time it's entertaining and people love it. And partially, probably, the very thing that you're considering a defect kind of becomes your superpower. Yeah, like I, I've been in, in a few musical improv shows with you and I have noticed that. <laughs> <laughs> but what's great though... <laughs> but what's great though is that you still super commit oh to what God. you're doing... And it's like, you don't make it look like it, it was a mistake that you made. Right. You make it look like that's exactly how I meant for that to happen. Mm-hmm. Which, is, which is what I love. Oh. I, I don't remember who said it, but there's like a, a jazz musician who says, 
Uh, I never play a, a wrong note. Mm. I just make sure that the next note complements what I just played. Mm. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, again, I don't remember who nice. said it. I'm sure someone will Google yeah. it or someone probably knows and will leave a comment saying, it was this person. You know who knows? Cornel West. Mm. He's a huge music fan, jazz in particular. So, yeah. yeah. So, he'll probably, he'll text in or, or something. But that's, I mean, you wow. say that, you know, like, make sure the next note complements that note. Yeah. So... Whatever that note was previously, mm. it's hard for me to make sure I compliment it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. <laughs> and, you know, so that's, you know, like, I, it's not that I don't love doing musical, but, like, the pressure of staying on rhythm, you know, mm. is, um, again, it's something that that bothers me. So it'll get me in my head, oh, and boy. then, um, yeah, that'll oh, start boy. a whole whirlwind of... Just, you do not want to see him like the Hulk. You do not want to see him when he's in his head. Um, but that is the beauty and the miracle of improv. Like where else can you do a musical thing where the so-called defects are actual um, attributes? Yeah, you know what I mean. Like if you if you're singing in any other standard capacity, you either you know you have to sound good, you have to be able to be on pitch, you have to know the you know all these technical things you have to be able to do in order for it to sound right and be effective improv that is not the case right Mm -hmm. yeah and that's magical theater and 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 certainly improvisation and i think i talk about this a little bit in the book it's an existential experience it's the greatest existential experience because it's you when when we're practicing theater or improvisation well improvisation is theater when we're practicing improvisation or theater it's you doing that, but it's not you doing that, but it's you feeling that, but it's not you feeling that, but you're feeling that. And it's you interacting, but it's not you interacting, but you're interacting. And it's it's not really necessarily escapism as much as it's a parallel way of living your life for that period of time. And I think that what what a lot of people don't realize when it comes to improvisation is improvisation is the great, it's like there's not theatrical improvisation. There's nothing like it in the world. It's not like a jazz in, in when you're jazz, when you're in improv, like Charlie Parker or, you know, uh, Ella Fitzgerald, where it's like you're scatting and you're improvising all this. This is really different because you're taking on a different persona. And this persona is this open door that allows you to do whatever it is that needs to be done in that moment with somebody who wants to do that with you in that moment. Is it escapism? Certainly. But looking at it from a, looking at it from the way that I love looking at it, which is like for a bit, for a bit, I'm not going to be me, but I'm going to be me. Mm-hmm. And and that's the that's the fun thing. And that's the thing that most a lot of people don't realize and have a hard time with it, because, of course, it's me. I'm doing it. it's like, yeah, of course, it's you're doing it. Are you you in your dream when you're in a dream? Are you you? It's like, yeah, you're you, but you're not really you, but you're you. And you're, are you experiencing things? Like, no, I'm not really experiencing things. But, you know, if you had a dream where you were, like, I don't know, fondling my ass, and the next day you saw me, wouldn't you feel a little bit weird? <laughs> because it's like, I don't know what you went through. But does that make sense? It, it does. It does. Because when we're performing, you're you and not you at the same time, but still you. I totally get that. Right. Uh, I, I think where I, when I got really serious about it was because when I started getting a uh, Zen like connection with the world, like I started feeling like this is no longer just me trying to get people's um, 
compliments or, or people's love, it started turning into I'm creating something here and it connected me with the rest of the world with some creative ether. And I loved that connection and started getting deeper into what that connection meant for me. Have, have you ever gone surfing? No, I haven't. You need to go do that, especially being from Florida. I'm sure the waves are great uh, on the Gulf side, I'm guessing. Uh, but if you ever go surfing, I, I didn't really understand it until I went surfing. I went, I love to go to San Diego in California. Um, and I'm not a great surfer at all, but I love going anyway. And one of the things that I enjoyed was like, you go out, you paddle out like half a mile out and you're exhausted by the time you get there. And you're sitting on your board and you're watching the waves break as they're coming in and trying to figure out which is the right way for you to ride to get back to back to the uh, beach. And so while you're sitting there, you don't like have time to think about anything really, because like you're thinking, where are the sharks? Where's the wave? Am I going to drown? Where's the coral? Like you're thinking of like all these things that could happen right there. So you got to kind of be very, 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 very much in the present when you're doing it. And then when you find the wave that you're going to catch and you turn around and you start paddling and you catch the wave, the board locks into the wave. It is like you can't do anything about it. Once it's in, you it's difficult to not get it to like write it out. It's it's there. And so you're riding this wave and you have this emotion. I'm getting goosebumps talking about it. Uh, you have this, this emotional connection with the water and with the shore and with everything. And it's like for the, you know, maybe 15 seconds that you're riding from the ocean to the beach, it's Zed. It is, mm. the world makes sense at that point. And then you fall off and hopefully you've attached your board to your leg and you can retrieve it. And then you do it again. And I never understood. I watched Point Break. I watched Baywatch. I watched all these California movies about these surfer people. And I didn't get it till I did it. And I was like, now I know why people go chase waves. I, it, like, it makes sense to me. And I think when I got serious about it was that I reached that Zen moment, the same exact feeling when I would be doing performance art and you would lock in with that creative, you know, Zen moment. And you're like, oh, this makes sense. I would need more of that. That's my drug. That's what I want to achieve every time I'm up on stage. That is so amazing. I'll share with you why I really am not excited to go surfing. And it's only because of this reason alone. My wife is a really big fan of Shark Week. Okay. And so every time they play Shark Week on Discovery Channel every year, of course, there's that one documentary that talks about surfers going out and being bit by sharks and being horribly uh, mangled. So that's the one reason why I haven't tried it. I recommend Batman Shark Repellent. If that's if that helps you any, just let me know. Uh, okay. I, if I, you got a supply, I'll be happy to buy some. <laughs> I'll send you some. I'll bring some next week. Uh, yeah, like, I, I get it. I absolutely. I, you know, it's weird, though. Like, that chasing that zen is almost worth it. I, I think I'll feel differently once I get bitten. <laughs> In 2019 you were awarded magician of the year by the magic castle that had to have been such a very proud and special moment for you. What is that feeling to, first of all, to just be performing there in the first place, knowing that that's where some of the greatest of the greats have stepped and performed and have received that same award that you received. When I did the castle for the first time, I found a little spot. This is the, kindest thing I ever did to myself. 
I found a little spot on the wall and I put my hand there just to like really be present and be like, I made it. I'm performing at the Magic Castle. This is amazing. And every time, and I've worked there like 20 times since then, I put my hand in the same spot to like connect myself to that moment of like, you get to be here. You get to be in this special, incredible place. And it always like makes me want to cry. So to be awarded that award was a huge deal because it's not like three guys in a room picking someone. It is a vote from the entire membership. These are people who had to audition to be members of the castle, who paid dues every year. These are people who see so much magic, who are so well-informed, and they all had to decide, I'm the best. So the, here's how that experience was. We were like early on in the pandemic and uh, I got this email from Max and Max, Max Maven and I were very good friends. I considered, I, you know, in retrospect, I, I realized how much of a mentor he was, although we, would, we wouldn't have used that, those words for each other at the time. Uh, and he had, he had called me a couple days before to say, do you want your name on the award or should it be Lucy's name? <laughs> and I went, oh, I don't know. What do you think? And he goes, well, Lucy, it's Lucy's victory. So I think it should be Lucy's name, but it's up to you. And I was like, no, you're right. It should be Lucy's name. And none of that conversation felt suspicious. That didn't, nothing went into my thick noggin. I didn't know I was nominated, whatever. Didn't think there was a chance in holy hell I would win. And I get an email a couple of mornings later from Max and it says the magic. And it's a chunk of paragraph. I'm reading it and I'm like, oh, Max wrote this really ambiguously. It reads like I won. People are going to think they won. Like this is the, oh, sorry, you didn't win email. And it looks like I won. And I'm like, I'm going to read it again. I'm even just reading it weird. I read it four times thinking it was just badly <laughs> written and I was misreading it. Like my reading comprehension was bad because it was the first thing I read in the morning. And then it occurred to me like, oh God, no, it's, it's me. Okay. And so... You know, at the time, it's a lockdown. There's nowhere to go. We can't celebrate. Nothing to do. So I walk into the other room with my two roommates, um, you know, Richard and Miranda, who were doing the online show with me. And I looked at Richard, like, Miranda wasn't even up yet. And I just said, I, I think I just won stage magician of the year. And he went, great. Because he's, he's not a magician. He had no idea what that meant. He was like, that's great. And I went, yeah. And then there was like a three-minute silence. And he goes, do we order cupcakes? And I went, Yeah. And then we ordered cupcakes. And then that was the whole victory. Like there was no party. There was nothing. Um, and it was great. What it did do for me is that I think we all have this little voice in our head that says, I fooled everyone. Like I'm actually incompetent and I'm a terrible magician and everyone's just being nice to me so that I don't cry. Like nobody actually likes my show. But and then and then my brain for the first time, I had a, a second voice and that other voice would go, yeah. But you did win Stage Magician of the Year. So, like, <laughs> you can't be the worst. You can't literally be the worst. And then, so then they didn't hold the awards the next year because, you know, obviously pandemic. Uh, and then they held the awards again for the first time this year. And I got nominated again. So I won last time they did awards. I got nominated this time. There's no way I'm going to win two years in a row. That's never, no woman at the Magic Castle, in the history of the Magic Castle, has ever won any award twice in a row ever it's never happened it's not happening this year and chuck 
messages me and goes, hey, are you going to fly out for the awards? And I'm like, I'm not going to fly out. And he's like, we think you should fly out. And I was like, no, I'm doing this show in Pittsburgh. I can't fly out. And he's like, we, we think you should fly out. We'll, we'll get you a hotel. Now I'm like, hmm. and then I'm thinking, okay, well, I'm nominated for both Stage Magician of the Year and Lecture of the Year. So maybe they, you know, that's pretty significant. Maybe they want me there for that. So I fly out and I'm sitting in the audience and I am so convinced I have not won. I have not a speech and I have had too many drinks. And then they announce, <laughs> I, I know, then they announce I've won again. And I was just like, well, fuck, like <laughs> I don't have a speech. So... I go up, but it was nice because this time I got to like do the party and the speech and the, and all that, which was so lovely. And I didn't get to have the first time. Uh, and my speech, I don't remember it, but mostly my speech was like Simon Cornell had just won for uh, close up. who was a good friend of mine. And so I said, uh, ditto what Simon said. Uh, thank you so much. You know, the castle means so much to me. And also huge thanks to, you know, the, long gone Max Maven who passed away recently because if you don't think him on this stage you're getting super haunted and then I left because I was like that's all I got <laughs> that's all I got <laughs> um, but it, it feels amazing to, to be so beloved by that membership like it's one thing to be respected by your peers it's another thing to be respected by people that like you feel weird even calling your peers you know like the membership of the Magic Castle are elite accomplished, passionate magicians, and also like some of the most interesting, kind, ambitious, weird people I've ever met. So it's like, these are not just my peers. These are like the creme de la creme. <laughs> and they're like, you, we pick you. Uh, why? <laughs> I, why? Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's amazing. It is the greatest possible are definitely known for being this very strong and and unfiltered uh performer um have you Ooh. always kind of performed that way or did did that take some time for you to develop no i was always that way i mean i was always that way at, at the annoyance at at io i was dealing with group mind and ensemble and at second city i was dealing with social and political satire but the annoyance i could do and say what i wanted um, with no restrictions. I had restrictions at Second City for my first review. They actually censored me. They said, you can't go blue, which means cunty, titty, titty, cunty. I don't know what the fuck it means, but that's what they said. So I was like, okay, I'll exercise other muscles. You've got tour groups coming in from Hyde Park. Okay, I don't know. So it wasn't that I'm known. The annoyance was a place where content was protected merely by walking in the door. It's not that way anymore. Um, I would say three quarters, at least of the shows that we did then that were happy and playful and looked like fifth graders saying fucking fart, uh, now would look ugly and unprotected. And I'm not interested in alienating our audience. Um, so what's left is whimsy, I would say. I mean, I've always tried to protect my show by, um, having it on a late time, you know, a late night time slot on a fuck you time slot where, you know, if you're showing up, you should know what you're getting in for. Like that woman who came to the show, she probably should have Googled us because otherwise she should have taken her mother-in-law to see cats, you know? Um, so I guess that's what I'm known for, but sometimes I'll be in a 7.30 slot when they're having me go to another city and I'm like, oh, oh no, 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 no. And then I try to protect it in at least the intro. 
I'll be like, messing with a friend is just, for those of you who don't know, it's described as a joyful, uncensored, and improvised romp through hell. So I can't protect it any more than that. When Rachel and I play, for example, as the boys, we say we make it worse. And if you're lucky, we might make it worst, you know? So I try my best to protect it. Um, it's not like I have Tourette's and I can't be controlled. Um, it's not like I can't talk to grandparents differently than I talk to my best friends. I can. So it's not like I can't adapt for my audience. But when I get to do and say whatever I want to do and say, I want to do and say whatever what I want to do and say. I mean, it's for me, this is all a sociological study of the human condition, good, bad, and ugly. So God bless, including this interview, which is probably sounds like mud. I'm so sorry. Oh, come on. This interview is going great. I love every moment of this. Oh my God. I'm so excited that it's going well. See, I have no idea about product. I'm all process. <laughs> well, there you have it, everybody. Some of my favorite moments from season one. Thank you all for listening today. And I also want to sincerely thank you all for being with me since the beginning and taking this journey with me. It's been an incredible journey and I'd like to think that we're just getting started. So we're going to take a little bit of a break, and then we'll be back with Improv and Magic Season 2. We'll have lots more conversations with some friends who are improv actors, we'll have more magicians, and we might even have some others that are outside of these two worlds, so we're widening the circle a little bit. I'm also excited to share that in Season 2, I'll be introducing a new segment called LD's Tips. These are some tips that I've learned along the way that have helped me develop myself, and so I thought I'd share some of these tips with all of you. These are tips that are for improvisers and magicians, and some will even apply to both. And some of these tips might also be helpful for you if you're neither one of these. I'm always happy to share some of the stuff that I've learned over the years, because I always believe that it's important for us to help each other grow. If you'd like to relive these great moments that you've just heard, I invite you to listen to the episodes in their entirety here on the Improv and Magic Podcast. Feel free to leave a review, give some stars, and by all means, share this podcast with people you know who might get a kick out of this. So, here's to Season 1. Cheers, everybody. Have a celebratory drink today, and I'll see you all again for Season 2 of Improv and Magic.